Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and today we're back in the podcast studio, and I've got a special guest for our audience, Dr. Mark Lewis. Dr. Lewis, can I call you Mark? Oh, please do, Dino. <laughs> I know we're, we're, we've become friends over the last couple months. Yeah. Our audience may know the name. Uh, when COVID started, this is so crazy that we were, you know, off uh, recording here. We were just talking, catching up here. But, you know, we, we talked, we had you on the podcast for a special COVID edition back mm-hmm. in March. And just catching up on, you know, everything that's transpired from March now here to, you know, the middle of September is just really fascinating. But thanks for being on the Project Purple podcast with us again, Mark. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. And this audience, uh, as we'll discuss, I feel so much uh, empathy for them and uh, just very privileged to talk to you and them. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, For audience to stay at home, Dr. Lewis is an oncologist at Intermountain in Utah. And your story is really, really fascinating. Um, I know when we had you back in March, we we stayed focused. We were talking about COVID and how that related to the pancreatic cancer community and what people should be aware of, what they should avoid, what they should kind of be talking to their doctors about. This podcast is really about your story, which, you know, I've been following you for a while. You've got a, a great Twitter presence. I think I, I got to do some, re- I didn't do the research. You, you might have the most Twitter followers in the pancreatic cancer sphere. <laughs> well, you know, that would be, um, I mean, I'd be very privileged if that was the case. It's funny. Um, I was having a conversation recently and someone was like, wow, you're, you're a famous oncologist. I said, yes, famous for an oncologist, which is um, really a, a very low bar. Um, you know, you know, if, if we're, if we're, if we're known that well, we've either done something very, very wrong, uh, or we've sort of, um, you know, tried to make ourselves available on social media. And thank you for saying that, Dina. But really what I try to be there is not just a oncologist, but a real human being, sort of warts and all. Um, there's a unfortunate sort of persona around oncologists that we've largely earned, you know, through the toxicity of our treatments that, mm-hmm. you know, we're not people that you want to meet. And, and, and in some cases, that's always going to be true, because if you're meeting us, you have a cancer diagnosis. Um, that said, once you are under our care, you know we don't want you to be terrified of us. We want to have an open therapeutic relationship, and thankfully, treatments are getting uh, much more tolerable and effective. Uh, but I wanted to dispel the notion that I or any of my colleagues are you know chemo dispensing robots. And, and frankly, you know, for a long time, um, that's kind of been how we've been perceived. So I'm quite deliberately open um, on Twitter, and I'm, I'm very open, in fact, about the fact that. Um, I'm, I'm a patient too. Uh, I think that takes, um, I, I don't think it makes me vulnerable. I, again, I hope it just makes me um, authentic. Um, and, you know, doctors are, are our people. We go through our own training, as we'll discuss later. There might be particular reasons that oncologists in particular choose this as a specialty. And hopefully that makes us more sympathetic mm-hmm. uh, to patients with cancer, not less. So anyway, I, I hope that uh, patients can see that this is a dialogue. This is not us um, just talking to them and prescribing things that are very harmful. This is us really trying to help them and you know be human ourselves. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I think that's something that we always, I'd say preach, not necessarily preach, but we, we do dictate to families. You know, make sure. sure that you feel comfortable with your oncologist because, you know, you want to be able to answer the questions. You want to be able to, for them to understand you. And if oncologist doesn't, then there's plenty of others that will. And, and I think that's important that what you just said, because that's how people get through this journey, you know, with yeah. having that partnership, because it's a partnership, you know, absolutely in their care and, and having that person really look out for them. You know, the, the, the Twitter thing, and, and, you know, I was joking, but I'm not joking. You, you do have, I just checked, you have more followers than Anirban. I thought Anirban was number one, Anirban Mietro <laughs> done it, uh, <laughs> MD Anderson, a good friend of, I know ours. I know, you know, Anirban. I know Anirban well. We've had, we've had him on the podcast before, but, um, you know, and, and I know we're joking, but I think that the, the one thing with COVID though, you know, and and I think we're going to talk a little bit about this in a bit, you know, because of, 
you know, the, the compromised immunity of our patient community. You know, telehealth has just exploded, which is, there's, there's a ton of benefits to that. But what I've seen on Twitter though, Mark, is that, you know, like this, this scientific community has really rallied on Twitter and you're a big part of that, you know, which in a good way, you know, there's some negatives about social media, but I'm talking about the positives here. Sure. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, in a time of essentially forced isolation, yeah. um, let alone the fact that even before the pandemic, people with cancer would often sort of feel um, different and maybe even withdrawn from their peers, uh, which I think is a two-way street. I think people yeah. with cancer often don't feel well enough to interact. And then the flip side, not that patients with cancer are contagious, but you know, as you and I know, it, it can actually be uncomfortable for quote-unquote healthy people to be around people that are sick. And whether they intend to or not, often patients with cancer are sort of left to their own devices, which is one of the really cruel things socially about the disease. So to your point, yes, there are, <laughs> there are many bad things about Twitter, including yeah. trolls uh, <laughs> and misinformation. But, but I agree with you. I, I've actually constantly reoriented myself and said, listen, for all the bad here, there is far more good. And the sense of community is really, I think, pretty remarkable. And one of the things I love about Twitter is its openness. Um, it, you, you can argue that there's still clicks and you know people cluster on hashtags, and that's normal behavior. But the fact that all the interaction on the site is, or almost all of it, is publicly visible, um, I think is actually really important and, again, breaks down this notion that doctors are somehow you know firewalled away from the rest of society. COVID is the best example of how medicine and the public are completely inextricable. And, you know, I really want people to see during this time that, yep, we don't have all the answers, but we are engaging in dialogue. And, you know, the fact that you and I spoke in March is really um, very meaningful because things look so different. Well, in some ways, look so different now. Mm-hmm. In some ways, unfortunately, have not changed nearly Correct. as much as we would like. Um, and, and I think there's been this narrative around science in particular that, you know, we're, we're held to things that we said in the spring. And that's fair, except that you know science does evolve. And you know, frankly, if I treated some cancer patients now, uh, the way I treated them a couple of years back, or certainly how I was trained, I, I would honestly consider it malpractice because th- things do change. I think the the science and the um, therapeutics around COVID have not evolved nearly fast enough to anyone's satisfaction. But I think as long as we're honest about the process, and again, I think Twitter is one place where it's pretty transparent. I think that should engender more public trust, not less. I agree. I agree. I completely agree with you. And it's fascinating, you know, to see on Twitter, at least from my perspective, how though, Mark, how the the pancreatic cancer community, I mean, it's it, I get these alerts like so-and-so just joined Twitter. You should follow them because X, Y, Z. And then I'll click into the profile and be like, oh, new oncologist from you know yep. X, Y, Z center or new basic researcher or someone who's following KRAS or you know has a specialty in pancreatic cancer. So it's awesome to see that because I think the more transparency we have in, a, in this public venue in a positive way, you know, this is going to help to build awareness. It's going to help to build trust and it's going to help to break down these barriers that I think have been there in the past pre-COVID, but now you've got COVID in the way because people yeah. can't necessarily meet people or they can't, you know, they're, we're doing things telehealth. It, it's tremendous. Um, you know, yeah. and, and this is kind of that, that pivot maybe for the medical community, hopefully for the people that see this as an advantage and not a disadvantage. I agree. And, you know, even in my relatively short career, I've seen social media go from something that's considered frivolous for an oncologist to something that's almost uh, frankly, necessary or at least extremely yeah. helpful for your career. My my very first day on on faculty after fellowship, I had a very forward thinking chair who said, "You know, you really ought to be on Twitter." And I thought this was such a bizarre conversation to be asking <laughs> on my first day. And and in fact, he was completely right. So for the first couple of years, I hardly said a thing. I just listened and I followed um, people who he suggested and whom I respected in the field, and I sort of learned. You know, not just what was important to them, but where they were getting sources of information. And so you can use Twitter to your advantage. Even if you're not saying a word, you can use it to curate information for yourself. And, and back to the patient side of this, you know, one of the main disadvantages, I think, to the Internet is that clinical trials, even clinical trials that patients might have participated in when they're published, can sometimes sort of get hidden uh, behind paywalls. So that the publishers sort of take that intellectual property and, and monetize it. 
And, you know, that's really um, not creating a level playing field when it comes to patients and physicians, especially patients who are trying to make very nuanced decisions about their own care. Twitter is actually one way we can get around this sort of publishing problem in oncology in particular and, you know, advertise uh, and promote um, encouraging research. And I think the pancreatic cancer space is a perfect example. I mean, you know, pancreatic cancer is a is a tumor type, as you well know, especially adenocarcinoma, that for a long time was sort of viewed with therapeutic nihilism. It was like, well, we can't really do much for this. You know, we've got, you know, gemcitabine, and that's about it. And you know, in the last you know decade, certainly while I've been practicing, I've seen such change. Are we where we want to be? Absolutely not. But we are making progress. And I've seen a lot of activity um, around major conferences, around seminal papers on Twitter that really announces, hey, this is this is a change in the standard of care. And it's one that you can relay to the patients and the advocates in almost real time. I love it. I love all the good stuff that's coming out of it. So I want to back up a bit, Mark. Yeah. As we traditionally do with our guests, I know we gave them a, a tease there with all this information. So uh, <laughs> you, before you became the director, well, maybe I, I honestly don't know your full story as well with pancreatic sure. cancer. Um, I know yeah. I know you from the director of GI Oncology at Intermountain and all the great mm-hmm. work that you're doing. But there's there's a fascinating story here with you that I'd love to share with our audience. So, oh yeah, and and, and I'm more than happy to. And I want to be very clear that I, I have waived deliberately waived my confidentiality a long time ago because <laughs> I'm I'm very privileged. My my employer actually is is not just aware of my cancer diagnosis; they actively support me in being an advocate. So I know I'm in a very privileged position. So to back way up, you know, I'm actually not from America originally. I'm, I'm Scottish, and I, I moved to America when I was eight. <laughs> I mean, when you move uh, to the States, they make you get a chest x-ray. And, and the idea there is it's a public health exercise to make sure you don't have tuberculosis. So when we moved, um, went down to the embassy in London, uh, got our x-rays, and everything seemed to be in order. But then we got a phone call that said uh, from my father that his x-ray was not clear. And that was a big shock because he was 42 at the time. He was a minister. Uh, for what it's worth, he was a, he was a non-smoker. And I say that because you know, people tend to link um, smoking and lung problems, as it turns out, non-smokers can get lung cancer too. But regardless, he was in very, very good health. Uh, and, and there was no reason to suspect anything was wrong with him. And so that came as an awful shock. And basically, my entire experience in America was colored by, you know, once we arrived here, he needed surgery, he needed his lung removed. Mm. After that, he needed radiation and chemotherapy. And it turns out, to make a long story short, he actually had a um, a tumor from a hereditary syndrome that at the time was not recognized. Hmm. Uh, there weren't really enough clues for him or his oncologist to realize this was a genetic defect and not anything he had done wrong. So he died when I was quite young, and um, my mother and I decided to remain in the States, let me finish my education. So I ended up staying here. I went to college in Houston. I did my medical school and my residency in Houston. I did my fellowship uh, at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And my very first day, my very first day of fellowship, um, I developed abdominal pain. And of course, the natural reaction there is, oh, you're stressed because you're entering a new season yeah. of training. But actually, it turned out to be the first sign that I also carried the same genetic syndrome as my dad. And so I sort of had this eureka moment. Hmm. It was really surreal. I mean, I was just starting as an oncologist. I literally went to the doctor they assigned me and said, hey, I'm in my first week of oncology training. I think I have a cancer syndrome. And he looked at me quite rightly like I was probably a hypochondriac. But, but thankfully, he... Um, he relented and worked me up, and sure enough, I had the syndrome, and it's called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1. And what it means is you get these tumors that grow in your endocrine glands, including your pancreas. So in my entire experience in America, I was colored by my dad's illness, and my entire experience as an oncologist has been colored by my own illness. So literally from day one, uh, I've been both a patient and a physician. And it's really been very instructive because when I'm recommending treatments, or even participating in trial design, um, I guess sort of my superpower is I can see things from the patient side. And a lot of people go into oncology because they love the science. The science is very, very attractive. It's attractive in the sense that we're learning new things all the time and research is moving along at a lightning pace. Um, but it's very easy if you're just, it's sort of like losing the forest for the trees. If you're just down in the sort of the pathways of cell biology, you really can lose sight of the person. You know, and for me, you know, yes, I like to see tumors shrink on scans, but I also like to make my patients feel better and live longer. 
And and so I think what I can contribute to the conversation as an oncologist um, is in keeping things patient-centered. And as you're well aware, there's a lot of treatments uh, in pancreatic cancer that, that might prolong life but are profoundly toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important, I think, to remember both sides of the equation. And you know, because I'm always a patient and I'm usually a doctor, uh, I think I have a little bit of an advantage with just empathy um, and, and thinking about, well, what is the impact going to be on the person to whom you administer treatment X, whether it's a chemo drug or radiation or even surgery? I, I had a Whipple procedure in 2017, and I'm sure many in your audience have um, either gone through or been offered that surgery, and that's a life-changing procedure. And mm-hmm. I learned a lot going through that, um, just about how massive, um, and, uh, massively an operation can affect you and how it can really change you you know, permanently um, coming out of that operating room. So I've learned not to um, underestimate the impact of these various treatments on our on our patients. Um, and I try to be cognizant of that, both in my own practice and in my research. So when you were first day of fellowship, you had this pain. Did you find yeah. out right away? That- um, yeah, so the, the, yeah, so the, the sort of eureka moment, you know, happened because, and this is getting a little inside the endocrine syndrome, but what was actually causing my pain at that point was not tumors. It was the fact that I had a high calcium level. Hmm. And the reason that was so significant is my dad, all through his life, had suffered with high calcium, horrible trouble with kidney stones, had always been told it was dietary, but mm-hmm. it persisted even when he cut out all the dairy. And he was a very you know, uh, compliant patient. He would do whatever his doctors told him. He was still having these troubles. And I knew just enough, at that point I had done my internal medicine residency, I knew just enough that it was really unusual for high calcium to run in consecutive generations. And that pointed to a problem, not with our pancreas, but with the parathyroid glands. So the little kind of pea-sized glands live behind the thyroid. They regulate calcium. They basically determine the rate at which calcium leaches out of your bones into the bloodstream. And so I was like, oh my goodness, I've got high calcium too. My dad had that. There's literally only about two or three conditions that can do it. One of them is this MEN1 syndrome. And then I also knew that this very weird tumor that he had in his chest, which came not from the lung, but from the thymus, a little immune organ behind the breastbone. I knew that was a part of MEN1 too. And that's when all this kind of clicked for me. And so it, honestly, it was like uh, just this incredible moment, this epiphany. The fact that I had it on day one of fellowship just really put the icing on the cake. Um, and then, you know, I got my answer pretty quickly. And I will say I was profoundly lucky in the sense that I was able to leverage um, some professional courtesy. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of times when patients go to the doctor uh, with that kind of hypothesis that they have this rare tumor syndrome, because it only affects about one in 30,000 um, you know, they're going to be told that's far-fetched, you know, common things are common. This is very unlikely. Yeah. So I really had the, the good fortune again of sort of living on both sides of the fence. You know, yes, at that point I was a physician. I wasn't yet a fully fledged oncologist, but I knew enough and I was able to parlay that into getting the testing I needed. And I, I see so many patients come to me and again, this is all hindsight and bias, but you know, they've had symptoms that maybe were written off or not taken seriously enough or not put together. Uh, in a manner that led to the right diagnosis. And again, pancreas cancer is actually a really good example of that, unfortunately. I see a lot of people coming to me well into adulthood who all of a sudden develop diabetes and weight loss. And you know, when diabetes happens in most American adults, it's because of weight gain, and that weight gain then confers insulin resistance. That's type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes. But what we see in these people is a pattern where you know, they're, they're having trouble with their blood sugar and they're losing weight quite precipitously. And then, you know, you put it all together later, you realize, oh my goodness, that was the first sign of the pancreas cancer. Um, and, and again, this, none of this is to knock primary care doctors. They have an extremely difficult job. The vast majority of people that come to them are healthy and just need some help sort of maintaining their existing fitness. But there are you know, these people that throw up red flags and we need to recognize them as early as we can. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the to say the system is broken. I don't think the system is broken, but I think we just need to create this hyper awareness yeah. with those frontline, you know, primaries. But you know, in fairness, like you said, I mean, they're dealing with so many things, and let's be honest, the vagueness of the symptoms are different than you know abdominal pain, 
you know, rapid weight loss of someone, well, yeah. you know, some of, you know, the, 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 the back pain, the abdominal pain, you know, the, the common symptoms, I, I say common here in air quotes, because I, I think yes. people think they're just common unless like, you know, jaundice, right. jaundice is the yes. one that everyone goes, okay, that it was jaundice that, yep. you know, tipped them over the edge or, you know, 50 pounds in 30 days or, yeah. you know, um, but it's fascinating, Mark, because I, I think, you know, in fairness to the patient, you know, there should be something, you know, that if one, two, and three, you know, are presented, then there should be a call, the next call to action. And I think, you know, and, and we have made tremendous strides. I know you, you talked about, you know, some of the, the, the treatments that have uh, advanced here and just here in the, in the last couple of years, um, you know, where we were 10 years ago compared to where we are now. I think there's a lot happening in the early detection space. And mm -hmm. my hope is that, you know, maybe there are checklists now that go moving forward that like, you know, if patients do come in and I think patients, I, I think patients are a little bit more aware, but this is, a, yes. I guess, the benefit of the internet, right? That, you know, they it, do, yeah, they, they do a lot of self-diagnosing before they even get there. <laughs> right. And it's a two-way street. So I'll say two things. Number one is patients, I think, are much more willing to, to speak up. Um, my, my grandmother, my Scottish grandmother, um, to give you the opposite example, um, had a heart attack, uh, I think 92 on a Sunday. And she didn't tell anybody she was having chest pain until the Monday because, quote, you don't bother the doctor. So she didn't want to bother her doctor on the weekend, even with a massive heart attack. She survived that, by the way. But that, that's the example I always cite to my patients is please, please, please. Um, obviously, acute chest pain is an extreme example. But please let me know what's going on with your body because you're your best century. Um, but the other thing I'll say, uh, you know, is I think maybe there's some hope in the electronic medical record. Mm -hmm. So, you know, probably the common denominator now across American healthcare, and it may not be the same system, but almost every doctor, whether it's in a clinic or in a hospital, is putting information into a computer. So far, I'll tell you from the physician side, it's been a very one-sided equation in the sense that we put things in, we don't necessarily get that much out. But it strikes me that we have a huge opportunity I'm no programming guru, but it strikes me it wouldn't be that difficult to throw up flags when certain patterns emerge. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you know, checklists. I actually completely agree with you. Let's say the computer is smart enough to note weight loss, note um, you know, change in, in blood sugar, you know, uh, less control. And let's say in the review system, someone checks abdominal pain. Maybe that triad isn't enough to prompt the doctor to think about you know, a diagnosis, including a pancreatic cancer. Um, it's not going to be perfectly um, sensitive um, or specific, but I think it's a start. And I think we can start leveraging the power of these computers where you know, we've been inputting all this information. It would be nice to get some more actionable output. You never thought about that. But, you know, it's funny about that, Mark, though. I know for my mom, because my mom's still alive, you know, and, and when she goes to Yale, I, I think I'm set up on her email, uh, I guess the email contact. And mm -hmm. I constantly get the my chart. Um, yeah, you know, as as I go to, you know, I've, I've I'm in the early detection program at NYU. It's the same my chart, not the same system, but same type of system. Yeah. So you would think, yeah, I'm surprised. I mean, I know there's probably HIPAA and maybe some compliance, but there should be a way where my GP should be able, like, when I go, like, I had a COVID test a couple months back. Um, because I thought I was exposed and I went to my GP sure. and they should be able to see all that or have some sort of, you know, without me going through that checklist of, uh, right. you know, where I've been and what I've done or, you know, what, what medical issues I may have had in the last six months or even year. I think there's two things holding us back. One of which is more defensible than the other. I think confidentiality is huge Correct. Uh, and, and really held to the highest standard in American medicine. Frankly, um, you know, medical errors happen. Like, Doctors do make mistakes for human beings, but that is almost uh, more forgivable than an intentional violation of a patient's privacy. So I, I've actually seen you know, in my career, and I won't name names, but patients, uh, act, you know, their records get accessed uh, deliberately uh, by a physician who's not supposed to be in there. That's a fireable offense. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing I'll say is, you know, some of these electronic records that you are already inferring this are sort of on different operating systems, if you will, yeah. like one's Windows and one's iOS, yeah. and they're not interoperable. And, and frankly, they have proprietary sort of um, stamps on them. And, and so it's been really frustrating, even here in my, in my practice, 
in Salt Lake City, there's a huge cancer center across town with whom I frequently share patients, and we do not have an interchangeable medical record. So you're right. It's it's on the one hand wonderful that we're on the cutting edge of science, but then on the delivery side of things, often seems like we're way behind, you know, the industry standards and other and other um, aspects of tech. Um, So yeah, I I completely agree with you, and, and I think the ultimate sort of person who owns the data ought to be the patient. Um, because especially with pancreas cancer, you might be traveling around from yeah. one place to the other. You might be seeking a clinical trial or a center of excellence. And we should be making your you know, information as portable as possible. In fact, one of the, the P's in, in HIPAA is portability. It's supposed to be easy to move from one place to the other. And frankly, it's not. Yeah, we've had uh, we've interviewed a couple patients uh, that I just think off the top of my head. One gentleman, his wife has one of those big three-ring binders, and now she's expanded to a, a new, like, two three-ring binders because of with COVID, like, you know, and this is just the reality that we're in right now, right? Yeah. That she cannot go in to see him or be with him when he's meeting uh, and getting oncology, so she's fearful uh, that, you know... Like he had about like his temperature rose and they had to go to the ER. The the oncologist sent them to the ER. It was late at night and um, she sent them in with the binder and they knew everything about him, right? So they have everything, yes. which I thought was great. You know, it's a lot of work, but you know, it's working for them. And then another patient that we spoke with uh, recently, she came up with a, a really cool idea Um which was to have like thumb drives. So she yeah. had all of her medical records on a thumb drive and then she would just, and, and she was trying to market it to cancer patients as a whole, not just pancreatic cancer, but she was a sure. pancreatic cancer survivor. And, you know, she had this idea, like when she was going through her journey a couple of years back and, and I told her, I said, wow, like, you know, the foresight that you had, not knowing that we would be in this reality of COVID where, you know, usually you have a spouse or a, a, a loved one or, a, you know, a friend going in with a patient to do treatment and you have a, and I always used to advocate like, you know, bring someone with you because, you know, if you can't bring a third person with you, because if it's a husband and wife, you know, the husband who might be battling is thinking, oh my God, the wife is thinking, oh my God. And they're not even listening to the oncologist that third yep. person's yep. listening, right? So, but now with everything that's transpired, you know, you, you, only the patients can go into most of the centers. They're not allowing any guests to accompany them. That, that is so true. And, and I've seen that, uh, you know, again and again. So you're right, even before the pandemic, patients have what I call the tinnitus of terror. So you hear the cancer diagnosis affirmed, you hear the C word. And after that, everything is just like, it's almost like the, the, the doctor could just be, you're spewing gibberish. It's hard to retain. So actually, a couple of things there. One is, even before the pandemic, but especially now, I actually give them permission to record me. So, you know, they can go back later when sort of the shell shock is worn off and listen to what we have to see. Um, but secondly, I agree with you. I think one of the things I learned from the pandemic quite tragically, um, but also obviously, is just a, what a key role patients, families, you know, caregivers, and friends play in their care. I mean, um, you know, now it's very common. I see someone at diagnosis, I treat them, and then heaven forbid they end up in the hospital, and the entire time they're by themselves. And that has just been a profound shift. I mean, and I'm realizing again in retrospect just how many of these wonderful relatives and, and peers have been sort of therapeutic allies over the years. And it's very hard on the patient to go through this uh, in a vacuum. And that's one of the, again, one of the heartbreaking things about COVID. There have been brief periods with less case positivity where we've sort of relaxed visitor restrictions slightly. Uh, but again, there have been peaks in the pandemic where it's been the only person that can come, the only patient. person that can go to chemo, and the only person that can go to the hospital is the patient. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a hard reality right now, yeah. especially with Very a lot tough. of these families. Going back to your situation, Mark, so you, you were – Died, well, you realize you had this gene mm-hmm. and this issue back the first day of fellowship. Yeah. And I, we're, we're not going to try to age you here, but <laughs> you mentioned then you had your Whipple in 2017. What transpired yeah. in between and, and what was the, you know, I, I know you said you had a neuroendocrine tumor. Yeah. So was it slow growing and just wasn't an issue until it became an issue or how did that transpire? It was, yeah, it was, it was slow growing at first. In fact, it was so slow growing, you know, and I don't mind aging myself. So I was 30 <laughs> when I was diagnosed and I was 37 when I had my Whipple. So that, that gave me a long period of time where I was able to finish uh, my fellowship and I had four years in practice before I needed the surgery. 
Um, at one point, I was worried that it might sort of end my sort of career, at least my clinical work, and thankfully it didn't. Um, but that's one of the reasons I was trying to put it off for as long as possible. Um, so to answer your question, when I was first diagnosed, I, you know, I had this pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Um, a lot of my friends just heard pancreatic cancer and you know, were sort of understandably worried because, as you know, when you hear that phrase, it's quite natural to mm-hmm. default to pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And I want to be very clear for your audience, I'm in no way trying to conflate adenocarcinoma and neuroendocrine tumors. They, they, they're very different in their biology. That said, uh, patients can die of neuroendocrine tumors as well. And in fact, when I was first diagnosed, my reassurance to my friends was, don't worry, I had the same tumor that Steve Jobs does. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, he passed away, and he was you know, one of the wealthiest men in the world with access to all the best care. And then all of a sudden, that reassurance wasn't quite as comforting. Yeah. So what I was able to do, and I'm very lucky to have done this, was basically watch my tumors on an annual basis. Because here's the thing. Genetically, my entire pancreas is abnormal. If you look close enough, there's tumors everywhere, all up and down. And so the question was, when was there going to be a sort of switch flipped in one or more of them? where they started becoming more aggressive and were growing and threatening to spread. And basically between the summer of 2016 and the summer of 2017, that's when that happened. I saw a tumor in the head grow quite dramatically. Uh, and that told me, even as an oncologist, that it was time to act. Um, so that's why I did the surgery. The surgery was almost, you can argue, it was prevention. It was preventing this more aggressive uh, tumor from spreading. And so far, knock on wood, that's worked. Three years later, still have tumor results in my pancreas, but I don't have that threatening one anymore, and my liver is still metastasis-free. Um, that's obviously a very different approach and monitoring plan than most patients with pancreatic cancer. As you're more than aware, and as your audience knows all too well, you know, pancreatic cancer often comes out of nowhere as just a complete gut punch. Um, you mentioned earlier about jaundice. In some ways, I- I'm suspecting that patients with tumors in the pancreatic head might actually have a slightly better prognosis than some of the patients with tail tumors because the jaundice tends Mm -hmm. to bring them to light uh, at a slightly lesser stage. Uh, Obviously, it's difficult to ignore uh, when you turn yellow. Uh, A tail tumor, however, can sort of hide in the relatively uh, unexciting left upper quadrant of the abdomen, uh, and it can grow to quite a size and have spread uh, before anyone knows it's there. So, um, again, just to say I know I'm privileged. Uh, I'm privileged professionally and personally. I've always had access to good care. I almost feel guilty. I, I sort of feel like I snuck into this club, <laughs> that club being medicine, and I now have access to all, you know, my, my friends are also specialists. And so yeah. I've been very, very fortunate, but I also sort of feel then the need to sort of pay it back uh, and be a vocal um, advocate for those who are not quite as well positioned. And, and that's where it's, it's tough. You know, neuroendocrine tumors, unlike adeno, do tend to linger for years. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying earlier, they tend to cause fairly vague symptoms. And so patients will go, I think on average, you know, years and in some cases even a decade, dealing with symptoms that are poorly explained, if they're explained at all, and, and then they finally get a diagnosis. And what that does, in hindsight, is it engenders quite a lot of mistrust. You know, you've been going to the doctor annually. You, know, you might have told them about symptoms. You might have been told you had irritable bowel syndrome or some other explanation. And then you find out later it's a tumor, and that, that obviously disturbs your, um, your trust. Uh, so one of the things, again, I'm trying to do is reestablish that trust, but it only happens with a two-way dialogue. So did you do any type of chemotherapy pre or post or not needed? So far, I have been very fortunate not to need that. Um, if I get tumors in my liver, that's going to be a whole different proposition. And again, things have changed in pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Things have changed in pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors too, where, and this sounds very sci-fi, but we can now do a... Uh, intravenous radiation, where the radiation circulates mm-hmm. and sort of uh, is like a, a microdose of radiation to mm-hmm. just the neuroendocrine tumors via some receptor binding, mm-hmm. and then it leaves the body. So that is something I might need in the future, but so far I haven't needed that. I've been very fortunate. So far, my, my syndrome has only required surgeries. I've required surgeries on my neck and surgeries on my abdomen, uh, but so far that's been it. I do have tumors in my pituitary gland, but so far I've been able to leave those alone. Uh, and go about my work. I feel very, very lucky to be healthy enough to do what I do. So how has going through this experience, Mark, and I mean, you went through first day of fellowship and then seven years later, I can't believe how young you are, by the way. Um, <laughs> did you turn 40 yet? Are you 40? Yeah, yet? I'm 40 now. I'm 40 now. Yeah. Okay. Jeez. 
put me to shame here. Uh, <laughs> young guy. So going through this experience, I got to ask this question. I mean, being an oncologist and dealing with this disease, like, do you ever sit back and think like, how would it be? Like, how would you be if you didn't go through that? Yeah. No, I thank you for asking. And again, as an oncologist, uh, not that I'd recommend any of my colleagues go through this, but you know, empathy is a very powerful yeah. emotion. And so I think hopefully every oncologist feels sympathy for their patients. They feel, um, you know, they feel bad that someone has to go through cancer and its treatment. And, you know, there, that's where sort of compassion kicks in. But empathy is, I think, more than that is being able to understand on some level what someone is going through. And I'm so glad you mentioned actually, you know, I have not done chemo, I've not done radiation myself yet. So I, I can't say I've gotten that taste of my own medicine. But really, it allows me to think about, you know, how scary it is to be diagnosed, um, how you sort of assess, you know, short-term uh, risk versus long-term benefit. Because frankly, when I was first diagnosed, one of the options presented to me was just have your whole pancreas removed. Yeah. Um, which would have been a very radical step. On the one hand, it would have gotten, um, you know, completely rid of my risk of pancreatic tumors. On the other hand, it would have immediately rendered me what's called a pancreoprivic diabetic, which some of your patients might be. Yeah, it's where, diabetic, you know, yeah. pancreas is either surgically absent or functionally not there, and you immediately become diabetic. And at least at the time I was diagnosed, you know, if you became diabetic on that level, uh, you're probably shaving a decade off your life because then you're going to have cardiovascular and other complications with diabetes. So that didn't seem worth it to me. So I guess where I come from is I understand the trade-off on some level, because chemo is always a trade-off. No one mm -hmm. in their right mind wants chemo. You have to convince the patient that it's in their best interest to do chemo. Um, and that, I think, is quite quite a different uh, argument. Um, and again, hopefully, uh, an agreement in the end. So um, you're right. I've often wondered you know, what would have happened if I hadn't had this cancer. But on the other hand, I don't think I would have gone into oncology if it wasn't for the experience with my dad. And you, know, you and I were chatting before the recording started. My pet theory, which I don't think is proven, but my pet theory is most oncologists have probably had, or many of us at least, have had a personal brush with cancer. Yeah. Because yes, you get into this maybe because you're in love with the science, but what sustains you in this career which frankly is just one heartbreak after the other in, in many ways, is the people. Uh, and so unless you have that, that personal connection um, and drive, it's really hard to stay in this. I mean, you could go into other fields that are just as intellectually rewarding, but what makes oncology different, I think, is the, is the human component. And they taught us in medical school, and I think this has been true in my career, short of psychiatry, you don't get any closer to your patients in any other specialty than you do in oncology. It really is an incredibly intense and in the most professional way, you know, intimate um, alliance with, with these people. You, you meet them at a time in their lives that are at or close to crisis. Uh, but you try to get them through the immediate you know, absorption of the diagnosis, and you try to give them hopefully years of meaningful life after that. And it's just like, you know, basically putting in a crucible with this other person and trying to help them through it. I mean, I think it's a, it's a weird form of bonding, but that's what it is. Um, so yeah, I, I can't, it's weird. I can't imagine um, being, uh, uh, not being a physician. And I can't imagine not having had cancer. It, it's weird. My dad was a minister. So if I hadn't done um, oncology, I think I probably would have followed him into the ministry. And on my, Guilty days where I, I sort of feel bad about breaking that chain because his dad was a minister before him and so on and so on. Um, I think, well, frankly, uh, medicine is very secular, but this is probably the closest I get to you know, helping people out uh, in, in times of uh, great adversity. Um, I, I tend not to get into religious discussions with my patients. In fact, I almost never do. But I, I do feel very lucky uh, to be in this position. And I feel like my dad set me up with a sort of understanding that I can, can carry over into my work. I just made a show note. You're the minister of oncology. <laughs> you know, and we're la you're, I I, it's like uh, Reggie White was the minister of defense, right? Yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. But you know, if you, if you really think about it though, like, so the, I, I always talk about this arc that people are on and, you know, if you didn't go through, you know, your dad was a minister, 
as you just mentioned, and you know, the, the spiritual side of that and how that impacts people in a positive way, right? And then he goes through this, you know, issue, this health, these health issues because of this genetic predisposition that yeah. you inherit. And then you follow this path into medicine because mm -hmm. of that experience that your dad had and then that you go through. And then now the positive impact you're having on people's lives going through the same cancer and similar cancer, you know, all under that pancreas umbrella is just really fascinating to me, Mark. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And again, my father was a, a great man. One thing that was remarkable about him is he actually, uh, so he was not just a minister, he was also a professor. So he taught um, seminary for, for most of the years he was on chemo, even though he was going bald and having horrible you know, problems with sickness. And so he really sort of um, broadcast a message to his, his students, you know, ministers in training. And, and the message I loved the most wasn't um, why me, it was why not me. And, and so he was profoundly humbled. And it was interesting. People sort of would say to him, well, this is so profoundly unfair. You know, you're so pious and you've devoted your life to you know, scholarship, the ministry. And he said, well, that doesn't, you know, that, is, that doesn't spare you from, you know, all the bad things that can happen to human beings. And he said, you know, our, one of his quotes was, you know, our, our, uh, life, our birth certificate doesn't come stamped with a guaranteed life expectancy. And, true. you know, it, and, and I, I've always taken that um, to heart from him. And, you know, again, you can, you can moralize disease. And in fact, one of the things I think we shouldn't do in cancer um, is, is moralize it because what's happened for far too long, Dino, as you are, you're aware is um, people have been ashamed to get cancer. You know, you go back even I think to the 1950s, if I'm not mistaken, you know, the New York Times uh, hardly mentioned cancer. I know breast cancer in particular was um, basically uh, not allowed, to, forbidden to be mentioned. Um, and then lung cancer for years, maybe even now, you know, lived under this stigma that, well, if you got lung cancer, you know, somehow you deserved it, you know, because you smoked. Smoked, yeah. Um, and the fact that non-smokers get lung cancer too, I think <laughs> is all the proof we need that that's, that's not true. Um you know, am I encouraging all your listeners to go out and start smoking? Of course not. No. But my real issue is, you know, no one deserves cancer. And it, more than other diseases, you know, with the possible exception of some of the venereal diseases, there's been this hor horrible um, judgment um, that's been imposed by uh, by and on people that get cancer. And sometimes they're their own worst critics. Like my father honestly thought he had done something wrong. He really did. And um, one of the things I wish I could do is, is, of course, go back and help him, but also unburden him of the guilt. This was this was always in his genes. It was never his fault. Uh, and, I, and I try to do that with my patients, too. I get so many people coming to me, especially as a GI doc, and saying, oh, it must have been something I ate or something mm -hmm. I did. You know, there's this formula uh, that Siddhartha Mukherjee wrote in the book, The Gene, that says everything happens to us is, yes, our genetic background, our heredity. But then it's also our lifestyle, our environment, and chance. And it's that last part that, on the one hand, is scary and intellectually dissatisfying, but it's also the truth that, you know, we're kind of in a big lottery. Um, we don't necessarily, you know, even if we are you know, absolutely fanatical about exercise and diet, we're not necessarily, you know, insulated from cancer. And that's why I don't think any cancer patient deserves to feel guilty. Um, so anyway, that was a long answer, but my point is, is that moralizing, making, making cancer a moral issue uh, tends to really cause people to blame themselves far, far more than they should. Uh, and the last thing someone needs when they're dealing with the psychological burden of cancer is also sort of this weird self-loathing. I, I think that's just awful, and I've seen that far too often. Well, it's a powerful statement you just said, and I, I think that it's, I have a note here about the genetics piece, which I want to get into right now, which I think is a great segue here. But, you know, I think the one thing, and you hit it right on the, the, the nail on top of the head, you know, and we, we get it a lot from patients when they call seeking assistance. Like, what did I do? Like, did I didn't yeah. eat right you know, into yeah. this thing. And, you know, we now know, I think the one fascinating piece is, you know, that genetics plays a big yeah. part in all of this. Right. And we're getting better at that. So that's where I kind of want to go here with, you know, patients who have genetics, and know about genetics, what should those patients be doing in your opinion? Because we do know with, with certain genes right now that, you know, those patients are at higher risk. Yes. And, and you know, I think that one of the big um, sort of lessons of the last couple of years has been, you know, this shift to 
almost as a, a mandate to consider BRCA testing in yeah. pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So you know, just in the last year, I think the national guidelines went from you know, consider BRCA testing to it's essentially required. do BRCA yeah. testing. Yeah, it really became uh, sort of you know, why why wouldn't you? And I think that's huge, you know, because um, I'll say a couple of things. Number one is for the most part, when you do the testing, uh, it's going to be negative. So mm-hmm. what that means is the patient can hopefully unburden themselves that this is something that would be passed on to you know, future generations. On the other hand, when it's positive, the spin there is, well, now their relatives will know and can really be much more vigilant. Um, so as you know, screening as a whole for pancreas cancer has been very, very difficult to, to do. Um, we haven't got a lot of traction because essentially it requires a huge investment of, of resources. And I hate to even be the math guy, but you know, when, when you talk about public health and screening, there's a whole bunch of calculations that go into it, including, well, you know, how many people are you going to have to test yep. and how much risk and expense you're going to incur to find, you know, the one person you can save. And I know that's kind of, kind of cold math, but that's, that's the way it works. Whereas I would say focused screening in families where, you know, at least one relative carries the BRCA mutation, that's a whole different ballgame. I mean, that's been a game changer for years in, in women. So most famously, you know, Angelina Jolie opted yeah. for prophylactic mastectomy and oophorectomy when she knew she would have BRCA. And, you know, frankly, one of the landmark moments in my oncology career was her coming out with that news. It was a, it's called the Angelina effect. Immediately we saw all these women getting tested and you know, having preventative surgeries. And, um, and that pendulum swung a little bit. It swung first to sort of over-testing and now I think it's settled where it's appropriate but to answer your question, yeah, you know, the landscape of pancreatic cancer now in the context of um, these genetics is so different. And we no longer have to just say, well, you know, we don't know exactly why you got this. We can really try to answer that. And then the last thing I would say is it's not just to the benefit of um, the patient um, and, and their family. It also is very helpful to the oncologist in planning that patient's treatment because certain drugs, especially the platinum keto drugs, might work better. Uh, in BRCA mutations, and you might then be able to pivot to another treatment like a PARP inhibitor. So it really has been fascinating. I've never seen uh, in my career um, the discovery of a mutation um, and, and the risk thereof kind of change the management of a cancer quite like BRCA and pancreatic cancer. Very quickly, it went from something you could think about doing to really being the standard of care. Yeah, it's fascinating. And that I mean, that's just been in the last couple of years. I mean, this is a exactly. fairly new within the last three years. I think I saw Steve Leach at ASCO GI a couple of years ago talk about, you know, the, when he was at MSK, talk about the study that they did. And I think ever since then, I think it's really become like standard of care now with the, you know, BRCA patients. And we've had a couple BRCA patients that we've interviewed and one in particular, you know, the guy came in for a podcast two years ago and uh, he looked like he had played 18 rounds of, of golf that morning. He was healthy. He was fit. And, you know, you hear the wife tell the story about, you know, his his head wasn't even able to get off the pillow. She was about to call hospice. And the team at Dana-Farber called and said, hey, you know what? We're going to try one more thing. And it was wow. you know, a platinum-based drug. And it changed his whole, you know, and he's NED. He was stage four. I mean, that that is like, you know, we, we love those anecdotes, you know, they really are proof of, you know, the, the promise of targeted therapy. Yeah. Unfortunately, we can't offer it to everybody yet. But yeah, and it's interesting, sort of dissociating BRC from just being about breast and ovarian cancer. Yeah. You know, there's some there's some very good doctors um, who have yet to make the connection to pancreas because yeah. when we were trained, that's not what we learned. You know, so that, that's the other thing I, I want to mention. And this kind of goes back to the pandemic too. You know, medicine is... Uh, a field where you really are signing up as a physician for lifelong learning. And again, if I, if I practiced, even the way I was trained in fellowship, um, it would be grossly underserved my patients because so much has come out to benefit yeah. since then. So you, it, it's, it's one of the reasons I really like it is I, I, I'm constantly challenged. There's no such thing as a boring day in oncology. And, you know, when I do learn something, not only is it intellectually satisfying, it's almost certain that I'm going to benefit a patient with that. And usually sooner rather than later. That, that's the other amazing thing is that you know, so much of what we learn, see at a meeting or a conference or reading a paper, you can almost immediately turn around and apply in the clinic. Um, and, and that speed, it doesn't always work that way. You know, sometimes insurance coverage lags. But um, you know, the, the speed with which things change and allow us to better our patient's treatment is just, it's unbelievably gratifying. And uh, that's one of the reasons, I, again, back to Twitter, 
Twitter's great because the really good stuff bubbles to the surface. There's always going to be you know, pettiness and trolls and that kind of thing. But when you see someone like Annerbun and then, you know, your organization and Pancan, and they're all kind of um, joining their voices in a chorus, you know, that's something you pay attention to. And, and that's how I think how the really important game-changing work really gets out there. Um, so we live in an amazing time, you know, this information age. So, you know, that point is great here. And, I, and I've got two questions and then one last one, and then we're going to share with our audience where they can connect with you. On that point, and, and this is loaded, I know it's not an easy question, but what do you think clinicians can do better? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll speak to this really wearing my patient hat as much as my physician hat. So again, we live in the era where the patient's input is is so crucial in not just picking the treatment, but also monitoring the side effects. So there was a, a very famous study done, uh, I believe, three years ago, where they looked at the survival advantage of patients reporting symptoms in real time to their doctors versus waiting um, for you know their visit, whether it was two weeks or monthly. And essentially, you know, the survival advantage for real time reporting was it looked like a blockbuster drug. The, the life gained, you know, if it was a pharmaceutical agent, would have made billions on the stock market. So it certainly is just so powerful to give feedback to your doctors. Now again, we're still working out all the sort of best electronic portals. Uh, for that to happen, oftentimes information is getting routed through the electronic medical medical record, or perhaps through sort of a, a nurse uh, serving as sort of the liaison there between patient and physician. But regardless, I don't think patients should be um, quiet uh, when they have problems. Uh, I actually think that uh, it's it's best for everybody if patients are vocal. I don't think they should be concerned about being viewed as difficult. Uh, I think they should, really should speak up. So that, that's one part. And the other part is I really think it's so key, as you mentioned earlier, for a good family history to be taken. So there's this buzzword in medicine, which I'm ashamed of, which is non-contributory. So sometimes when we're taking uh, a patient's history, we get to the family history section, we just write non-contributory. It's sort of like a um, way of skipping over that section. And surely in oncology, and now particularly in pancreatic cancer, that is just inappropriate. You really have to drill down in as much detail as possible and learn about that patient's family. You know, who had cancer? What type of cancer? How old were they? Um, it's that kind of granular detail that we really need to be getting in recording. It's powerful stuff. Now, from the patient perspective, because you were a patient and still are a patient. Yeah. What do you think is the most important thing or a couple of things that they should do upon being diagnosed? So, first of all, I am slightly nervous about Dr. Google. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, if, you, if you go and just type in pancreatic cancer into a search bar, uh, I think you're going to get a lot of results, many of them dismaying, um, some of them misleading. Um, one thing to remember about Google is it's not an altruistic site. It is driven by commerce. And you know, search engine optimization is going to drive results to the top, whether they're the most helpful to you or not. So again, this is going to sound awfully self-promotional. Um, I'm not saying everyone has to follow me on Twitter, but actually, I think Twitter is a is a really interesting place um, to follow uh, fellow patients, advocates, and researchers. And so, Pank SM hashtag P A N C S M is a really nice way you can sort of take the entire deluge of Twitter and narrow it down to a stream specifically concerned with pancreatic cancer social media. And that's a really good way, even if you don't immediately sort of understand all the articles, because some of them are, are pretty jargony, yeah. um, you can at least find a community there of people to communicate with and, and start learning about the disease. And so again, not only is that a good information source, it also connects you with other people who either care about this disease, care about people with this disease, or have the cancer themselves. Yeah, there's so many people willing to help out in a positive way. Yeah. And I think that's just a oh, great it's, it's, way to resource and network. It's a, it's, a, it's a profoundly positive experience, usually. And again, the sense of kinship you can find with other patients is really remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, and that's the one positive with social media. I mean, there, there's a couple of others, but I think that is really, you know, and in, in, in especially going back to what we are experiencing today in this COVID reality where isolation 
you know, for some people is what they need to do. Um, and not in sense of like, Hey, you need to like lock yourself in your house. Uh, but right. when you're isolating because of your compromised immunity and not necessarily venturing out to hang out with friends, um, you know, the social media can be a great way to allow yourself to be back into that world, to interact with people, and then also to do some research and from people that are in that space. And I think that's the one yeah. thing, Mark, that I may, maybe you agree with this statement, not to put words in your mouth, but I think this community is really unique in the sense, and my mom's a breast cancer survivor, and I guess I saw it yeah. a little bit with breast cancer, and one of our employees is a breast cancer survivor as well, that I know like some of the local groups are just like, they build this community, but there's something about the pancreatic cancer community and in that that Twitter sphere that just people really rally and they just share and it's just really inspiring for me to see from a foundational standpoint how Anarvon, how yourself, Dr. Clutie, Dr. Ocean, and just to name a few, um, yeah, you know that really are out there sharing and you know knowledge is power, right? So everyone's yeah. out there just putting this out there for free. So that, you know, um, the information is out there for, you know, the, the patients to digest and also the clinicians to digest and think about and have discussion and have positive discussion. So it's, yeah. it's really fascinating how that happens. Naturally, I don't follow breast cancer or any other cancer. I do follow some colon cancer uh, folks um, just from the GI perspective. And I see some of that yeah. happen, but um, it's really fascinating to see that on the pancreas side. Totally agree. Yeah. And I think, again, because you've got researchers and clinicians who are interested in this, um, you know, it used to be, even if I wanted to reach out to some sort of, you know, preeminent authority in the field, I would have to go to a meeting and wait in line and sort of nervously approach them. And now you've got all these people, it's really flattened that hierarchy and all these people are readily accessible, uh, many of them, I should say, on social media. It's great. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome to see. Last question, and this is always, I always say kind of our hardest question. In your experience, personally and professionally, how would you define pancreatic cancer? Oh, gosh. Um, so obviously, it's any tumor that arises in the pancreas. And so the pancreas, of course, is composed of different cells. So as we've already mentioned, there's sort of an umbrella there over a traditional adenocarcinoma and then over neuroendocrine tumors. But really, you know, I think the pancreas is almost defined more by the fact that it's an organ that you know, sort of lurks towards the back of the abdomen. Um, the symptoms at time of diagnosis can be very vague, um, and it can also you know, shift very abruptly from being completely asymptomatic to floridly symptomatic. Um, so I think it's, a, it's been a tricky disease for people to have uh, to get early enough diagnosis to make a mean, meaningful impact on their uh, duration of life. That said, I, I would also say pancreatic cancer, that phrase to me comes with a lot of hope um, just to see that in you know, my short career, let alone my dealing with it as a patient, just all the innovations that have come along. Um, and again, it's one of those diseases that you know, we used to sort of synonymize with uh, very early death. And thankfully, there's a lot of hope. I'm, I'm not taking away the fact it's a very serious and sometimes grave diagnosis. The things are getting better, and there have been some real paradigm shifts in the field just in the last couple of years are really making it dramatically better. Powerful. Dr. Mark Lewis, the director of GI Oncology at Intermountain in Utah, where is the best place if someone's listening? And I know we mentioned it, so I think we're going to go there. Um, if someone heard something, wants to talk to you about your journey with cancer or something about pancreatic cancer, to connect with you, to follow you, to reach out? Yeah. So Twitter, <laughs> sort of uh, foreshadowed. So I am Mark Lewis, MD. So all one word, M-A-R-K-L-E-W-I-S, MD. Um, and again, I'm an open book. I'm on there, yes, as a physician, but probably more so as a physician. Uh, and, uh, and a physician a patient, I should say. Uh, and then I'm a parent and I'm a husband. So I try to kind of incorporate as much as appropriate my entire um, life on, on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not just a doctor. I'm also hopefully approachable as a patient. And I, I encourage any of your listeners to reach out if I can be of help. Mark, I love it. And I, I will just say my closing remarks here for you is uh, I appreciate you giving us an opportunity to uh, see your personal side. And I think that is something that's really unique and really special because, you know, as serious as this disease is, to see clinicians 
put a human side to what they are doing is just really impactful and to me um, to see that you know being in this business for ten years and you know when I was going through it with my dad, you know we had yeah. many oncologists and that was something that was really you know, to be honest with you, um, you know, difficult because the first couple clinicians, oncologists with my dad just, you know, were robots. Um, and that's yep. not, you know, they, that's not saying they were bad. Um, quite honest, they just weren't the good fit for us. And then we finally found someone that, you know, had compassion and, you know, we could kind of relate to. And I think that's important because this is a very serious disease and, um, you know, I think you do that on Twitter. I love, uh, I love following you. I, I think that, you know, there's, there's things that you've shared, um, you know, about your family and, and, you know, about you personally, you know, going through your plight, um, and that that's important. And I appreciate you allowing the world to see that because I, I know oh. it's inspired me. So thank you for doing that. Oh, th thank you, Dan. That means the world uh, to me that you would say that. And it's funny, again, I've gone from it being viewed as something almost, disreputable for a physician to do to something that I think actually is, it's almost become our digital bedside manner, you know, yeah. how we behave on Twitter. And um, so thank you. And I'm just thrilled to be engaging in dialogue with, uh, with our patients. Well, I appreciate the time, Dr. Lewis. Thank you for all you do for the pancreatic cancer community. And thank you for being a guest on the podcast. As we say here, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, share this podcast, and until next time, be safe, and we'll see you soon. Beep.